So Psalm 127, uh, it, uh, it's part of a group of psalms, which is called uh, the Songs of Ascent, or the Psalms of Ascent. Uh, these psalms uh, are ones that are uh, traditionally uh, associated with uh, the Jews returning to Jerusalem for the Passover meal and for their various feasts. And as they would go up to Jerusalem, which is on a hill, they would, they would ascend the hill to the holy city, and they would be singing these psalms to remind themselves about who God is, how he has been faithful to them. And so each of these psalms plays a unique role in what they, how they focus in on God, how they focus in on the teachings of the Bible, and how they focus in on how we ought to orient our hearts to rightly worship who God is. And so uh, as, a, as a quick context for this, uh, it being a psalm of ascent, this one plays a particular role uh, as the Jewish people are ascending to Jerusalem, one of the things they would have seen as they were to ascend to the city, they would have seen the temple, which would have been built in all of its glory, in all of its splendor, with the finest craftsmanship, the finest materials, the most keen eye towards detail. Um, and as they ascend and they look upon this beautiful house of worship, the house of the Lord, they're being reminded through the teaching of this psalm in the very first line that unless the Lord is in this building... Unless the Lord is in this effort, unless the Lord is in even the most beautiful architectural design that they could have come up with, it is in complete vain that it has been built, and it is in complete vain that it exists. And so, as a means of context, this, this psalm begins to set out for us a biblical worldview of what it is like to embrace God's wisdom for success, and what it is like to embrace man's wisdom for success. The title of this sermon uh, is Sharpen Your Arrows. Sharpen Your Arrows. And there's really two ways that this uh, psalm unpacks and spills out into two different um, ideas on how uh, we need to work and work according to the wisdom of God to pursue the success of God. The first is found in the first two verses. It is what I would call the need for God or the necessity of God. And the second main idea or the second movement in this psalm is in verses 3, 4, and 5, and it is the blessing of God. So we're going to see first God moving, how he needs to be present, and then secondly, what the blessing of God really looks like. It has been well said by Derek Kidner, who is a commentator on the Psalms, that this psalm, right off the bat, addresses the three most common, most universal, and most um, gravity-heavy um, preoccupations of man, particularly American people. And that is building, security, and raising a family. Building, security, and raising a family. It addresses these things that we could summarize really as the American dream. We've all grown up in a culture that preaches to us the message of the need to build your career, the need to build your success, the need to build a house and a home the need to secure those things and to live in safe neighborhoods and to live in safe dwellings and to guard the investment and the building and the success that you have had. And then also the American dream is the family and the children that you raise and what it is like to have success in all of these lanes. And the world has cast for us a vision of what success in all of these lanes look like. And this psalm sets out for us what the Bible has to say about success in each of these three crucial and important lanes in our life. 
So first, I want you to take a look with me at verse 1, and we're going to see the need for God in our success. It says, verse 1, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. You see, in the first stanza, the first two verses, the word vain repeated three different times. If you have ever read the book of Ecclesiastes, the word vanity appears many, many times, and they're two different words in Hebrew, but they get to the same idea, or they come from the same root, which is talking about something that at the very end of the runway is empty. Vanity, or something that is vain, does not mean that it yields no fruit, does not yield, mean that it doesn't even yield temporary fruit. It doesn't even mean that it feels good or doesn't feel good when you're doing it. What it means is that at the end of that line, at the end of that runway, where it leads, the destination it takes you, is emptiness. Vain things or things that end in vanity are ultimately unsatisfactory. They are ultimately meaningless. And they are ultimately poor investments of time, treasure, resources, and concern. This psalm addresses three of those main preoccupations. It addresses, first and foremost, building things. It says, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. And at first glance, it seems like verses 1 and 2 of this psalm and verses 3, 4, and 5 are two different psalms hodgepodge together and kind of glued, and it was really like an editorial mistake. And there are some who make the case and some who would hold to that this was a poorly put together, misinterpreted, spliced together psalm. But if you back up and you ask the question, what does it mean to have both of these stanzas together? What does it mean for the first few addresses to address our preoccupations and the, the next stanza to address the blessing of children? What do those things have in common? You're going to see the theme or the root that you need to dig up to understand this psalm rightly. The theme or the root that you're going to see here is God and his blessing versus man and our blessing. See, man has a certain understanding of what it looks like to be successful, what it looks like to be blessed. And God, frankly, has a very different understanding of what those things look like. God tells us in his wisdom, in his sovereignty, how we ought to go about living our life. And man, in our finite knowledge also has an opinion or also has a say on what it looks like to be wise, what it looks like to be prudent, what it looks like to pursue wealth, what it looks like to pursue something that's meaningful in life. But God frankly disagrees. And in verses one and two, you see laid out the folly of man's wisdom. And you see in that second stanza, really what it looks like for God to bless a life. And what is that primary blessing of God? So this psalm really is two unified pieces and two parts to the same whole. You can think about different books of the Bible that you can think of that don't quite seem to fit in the overall narrative story of Scripture, and you really need to dig deep into each of those books, like the book of Ruth, which has no mention really of God, and then right at the end of the book of Ruth, it mentions the lineage that continues of David. And you get to see how this starts to play into the overall picture of the story of Scripture. And so it is with this psalm that the unity is found in backing up and looking at the bigger picture. And that big picture starts with 
uh, a clue that we get in verse 1. It's the word house. It says, unless the Lord builds the house. Now, house can mean two things. And if you're familiar with the story of David when he talks to God in 2 Samuel 7, you'll know this play on words that God uses in the Davidic covenant. David says to God, I want to build you a house, meaning I want to build you a temple, a dwelling place, a physical building that we can worship you. See, the Jews at that time only had access to the tabernacle, which was a temporary dwelling place, and it wasn't as glorious as even David's household was. And David says to the Lord, I want to build you a house. And the Lord says, no, you will not build me a house. I will build you a house. But when the Lord says house, he's not talking about a building. You see, David already had a place to live. He's talking about a family dynasty, the household of David, which was to be established and to be continued until Christ came. And so the two meanings of the word actually help us to unify or understand how these two stanzas go together. Because in the first stanza, it's talking about house, family. And in the second stanza, it tells us how the Lord builds the house. You see, it says, unless the Lord builds the house, and then the second stanza explains to us how it is that the Lord builds the house. So unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Their pursuit is empty at the end. And unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain, meaning he can watch and be as careful and as calculated as possible, and he can be vigilant And they can look and cover all their bases, but unless the Lord is with him watching over that city, at the end of that pursuit, at the end of that effort, is complete emptiness. Think of the watchman over the city of Jericho, watching uh, Joshua lead the people of Israel into the promised land. And the watchman over the city of Jericho can see the incoming Israelite army, but it was completely out of their power to do anything about what was coming. You see, God had decided that he was not watching over Jericho. Those watchmen watched and did so vigilantly, but it was ultimately in vain, for the Lord was not also watching over that city. And as people were building their own house, their own building, you can think of Genesis chapter 11 and the people building the Tower of Babel to spite God and to try to get to the heavens. And they're building this empire as big as they can of a building, And at the end of that same chapter, after the Lord has disbanded this small group of people, you get the story of a man named Terah and the son that he has, which is where we pick up the rest of Genesis, and the Lord, how he begins to build the household of Terah through the son Abraham and ultimately through the offspring, which lasted far longer than the Tower of Babel. And you have in those two illustrations a picture of what it looks like for the Lord to build something versus for man to build something, or for the Lord to watch over something, versus for man to watch over the city. It is in vain that men watch things unless the Lord watches with them. It is in vain that we build unless the Lord builds with us. Notice what the text does not say. The text does not say, because the Lord builds, it is vain to build, or because the Lord watches, it is vain to watch. The exhortation here is not to stop working or to not build or to not watch. The exhortation of the text is to be wise about your watching and about your building and about your work to make sure that God is at the center of these things. The text is not um, a, a fatalistic worldview. That is to say that it is not 
that we step back and do nothing and God does everything. God commands us to build and to cultivate. God commands us to watch and to secure our investments and to raise our children rightly. God commands us to produce and multiply his kingdom. But the exhortation here is not to step back and let God do those things. It is for us to work and always have in mind the fact that God must be working with us. You see, the disciples in the book of Acts, they wait for God to move, but as soon as he starts moving, they're moving with him. They don't just sit back and let the Holy Spirit do everything. They're preaching, they're proclaiming, they're in jail, and they're out of jail, and they're preaching again. They're doing things, they're working, they are laboring for the kingdom. But it was because the Lord was building that house that it was successful, not because the disciples were laboring in a particularly unique way. You'll remember the Sanhedrin counsels together, and the the conclusion that they arrive at in Acts chapter 5 is, uh, don't try to stop these men, because if the Lord is in it, they will succeed regardless of what you try to do. And if the Lord is not in it, it will fail regardless of what you try to do. And in that, we have a clue about why the early church was as successful as it was. It wasn't because they were particularly gifted preachers or particularly gifted in healing. It was because God was moving through his spirit. And so it is today and so it has always been that unless the Lord builds, it is vain. Unless the Lord watches, it is vain. Think about all the buildings that mankind has produced. Think about how few of them that have been built throughout history past still stand to this day. But think about the fact that the people of Israel are still here. Through genocide, through persecution, through enslavement, through occupation after occupation after occupation. Their buildings aren't here, but the Jewish people are still here. God's people are still here. And so it is with the church. There are church buildings that have come to rise and have had great and mighty ministries go out of them. And after a time, they lose focus, they lose sight of what God is doing, and they become about the dead, dry, religious activity. And those buildings close, and sometimes they repossess, sometimes they go all the way away, and they're not even on the map anymore. But yet the church continues to thrive all over the world, in different buildings, in different expressions, all over the place. Because it is not ultimately man-building that is successful, it is not ultimately man-watching that is successful, but it is God who is in those things. It is not a waste for us to watch. It is not a waste for us to build. It is a waste for us to do so thinking we can do it apart from God. That is the vanity that this is getting at. You'll see that more clearly expressed in verse 2. It says, it is in vain that you rise up early. That's that third repetition of the word. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest. Here it's not saying don't rise early or don't go late to rest. But it's saying, if you do these things, eating the bread of anxious toil. Our Lord commands us in the New Testament to be anxious about nothing, but through everything, through prayer and supplication, make your requests be made known to God. Jesus says, don't be anxious to have faith. What he does not say is don't work. What he does not say is don't get up early and cultivate. You see, our Lord Jesus rose early to pray and went late to bed to pray. What it's not saying is sleep all the time. Keep in mind the limits of this text. What what we are trying to do here is get a biblical understanding, a Christian understanding of what it means to work, of what it means to work in a way that honors and glorifies the Lord. 
It is well said that um, to get up early and to go to bed late, to burn the candle on both ends, this is common knowledge, is a fool's, er it's a fool's errand, it's a foolish endeavor, especially if you're doing so to build your own dynasty, your own career, your own success. If you do those things to advance your career, what ends up happening is you burn out. And eventually you run out of a life to live and maybe for 20 good years you were running at your career. But ultimately that led to what? What the Lord says is that you can rise early and go late to rest, but he has to be in it. You can't overcome what the Lord is not going to do. For example, look at this building that's around us right now. Look at all the stones and the architecture and the lights. And if I was to give you all of the raw resources that went into this building, just you, and say, go put it together, you would be completely unable to complete that task. That is our capacity for building. In fact, we need to amass a large amount of people and good construction equipment, additional resources, materials, skilled craftsmen in order to put something like this together. God speaks and creates things out of nothing. That's the different power of God's ability to build things versus our ability to build things. And so you and I would be fools and foolish and completely vain if we thought that we could build something in a way that would outpace how God is building it. That is what this text is talking about. It's not talking about don't build. What it's saying is build in line with and in conjunction with the Lord. Think about all these implications that it has for our spiritual lives. Think about what it means for us to pursue a career. God in his sovereignty and in his wisdom has ordained seven days a week, 24 hours a day. And he's put a biological clock inside each and every one of us that determines that we must sleep, we must eat, we must rest. And we look at that and we laugh and we say, yeah, right, I'll do it my way. And health and anxiousness and anxiety take hold and addictions to caffeine or other stimulants take hold. And all of a sudden we realize we're just as finite as we were originally and now we're ashamed of the fact that we couldn't do what we thought we could do. And God needs no rest. He rests as a pattern for us. He takes the seventh day off of creation, not because he needs to, but because he's modeling for us how to live our lives. He's modeling for us a pattern of rest. Think about what that implies for your career. Are you more wise than God thinking that you can run more than 24 hours a day, more than seven days a week? God in his infinite wisdom decided that this was the most fitting design for creation. And he created you and I with as much sleep as we need and as much food as we need. And we can't string together anxious bread and anxious toil and think that we're going to get away with it for long. Because to do so is rebellious to God. To do so is unwise. Think about what this implies for marriage. It has been well said by the commentator Adam Clark that all marriages that are not under God's blessing will be a private and a public curse. All marriages that are not under God's blessing will be both a private and a public curse. What this means is that just like with career, just like with the amount of time we have in a day, God has set up for us parameters of what it is to be married. He's given us guidelines and guidance and strict rules to follow. And these rules are not things meant to enslave us. They're meant to bless us. They're things that in his design are the most fitting way to go about it. And what that means is when you go outside of God's plan, you go outside of God's wisdom and you try to do it your own way, it is both a private 
and a public curse. What that means is if you try to date and live together before you're married, you are outside of the will of God. What that means is if you don't wait to have sex until marriage, you are outside of the will of God. You're following culture perfectly, but you are outside of the will of God. You're following the world's wisdom, not God's wisdom. If you think that marriage extends beyond a man and a woman and into whatever other expressions the modern world would have us believe, you are outside of God's plan. And although those efforts are not totally fruitless, although those efforts don't yield some benefit, they are ultimately described to us as vain and empty. Remember, it doesn't say that they eat no bread. It just says that they eat the bread of anxious toil meaning with much labor, with much sweat, with much hardship, with much suffering, with much anxiousness do they eat, but they do not enjoy rest as those who are within God's will do. Think about the implications for what this has for us as a church. It is in vain that we build anything apart from what God has for us, which means we need to walk in step with and in accordance to how he told us church ought to run, which means a focus on his word and not our ideas, which means a focus on worship and prayer and not events and food and entertainment and get-togethers. You can build a church off of that for a while, and you can get a lot of people to show up. But ultimately, the end of that path is emptiness. The end of that path is not fruitful, long-lasting, sustained impact for the kingdom. Think about how this uh, means for us in our sanctification process. As Christians, when we work out our salvation with fear and trembling, keep in mind the second half of that verse, for it is God who works in us, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Unless the Lord builds with us, our sanctification is nothing more than dead, dry, religious works that will amount to nothing but anxiousness, concern, sleeplessness, conviction over our sin with no relief for that conviction, because the Lord gives to his beloved sleep, according to verse 2, which means we can sin and we can find forgiveness in Jesus Christ, and we can go to sleep resting on the finished work of Christ Jesus on the cross, not having to wake up early and study more scripture and fast more and pray longer, Because Jesus' work is already done. And it is out of that restful place that we work. You see, the biblical worldview is not to not work. What it's talking about is the difference between frantic work versus versus fruitful work. The Bible lays out what it looks like to work in a fruitful manner. A manner that is out of the abundance of the blessing of God. That you produce fruit. And for trees to produce fruit, they need to be healthy. They need to be well-rooted, well-watered, in good soil, with good surrounding conditions. And think about how many of those factors are outside of the control of the tree. And you and I are much the same. We want to be fruitful in our work, and we want to labor at it, but we want to do so under the blessing and under the providence of God. And there's no other way. The contrast to that is to be frantic in your work, which means to burn the candle at both ends, to rush to get things done to produce always mediocre things. To be frantic in your work is to say to God, this is urgent, you haven't given me enough time to get it done or enough years to live or enough hours in the day. And so I need to 
overcome your creative oversight. That's frantic work. Fruitful work submits fully to what God has for us. Now again, what this doesn't mean is you should never stay up late to meet with someone who's going through a hard time. What this doesn't mean is don't get up early to spend time with God in his word. But what it does mean is you should know your limits and you should submit to them. Not in rebellion, but in humility. Because the Lord knows better than we know. I'll tell you, for those of you who know me, this passage kicked me in the butt this week. Because I really struggle with this. I wrestle all the time with thinking that I know better than God knows. And I'm sure many of you can relate to that. And your careers and your success and your endeavors, what you pursue, it cannot come at the expense of going outside of God's plan for how that looks. Think about as we build a church and as we build a community, all of the ways in which we can go wrong. And think about how the apostles committed themselves to prayer and the teaching of the word. And that is how they built the church. And the spirit moved. And there was no need for marketing or for events or for any of those things. And so we can quickly lose sight of what it is to be a God-centered, a God-focused, and a gospel-centric church. Look down with me at Psalm 128. I don't know if you have it on the same page in your Bible. Psalm 128, verse 1 and verse 2. It said, Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways, obeying his commands, obeying his plans. And verse 2 says, You shall eat the fruit of your labor. You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed, and it shall be well with you. Notice they labor, and they get to enjoy the fruit of it. And notice that is a blessing of God that gives them labor and fruit. But notice verse 1 gives the condition. It's blessed are those who walk in the way of the Lord, who fear the Lord, who do it according to his plan, how he said. This informs every aspect of our lives. And the scriptures speak to every aspect of our lives. Unless the Lord builds the house, unless the Lord watches the city, unless the Lord is with you in your work, it is complete vanity. And what this talks about here is what it is like to be inside of God's will or outside of it. We have a need for God in our work. And the second half of the psalm moves beyond the need for God and it starts talking about how exactly it is that God blesses humanity. How does God bless mankind? The second stanza or the second half of this psalm is bound up in the idea of raising and rearing children for the glory of God. It says in verse 3, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Now again, this seems initially like it doesn't fit with what we just talked about. But remember, the key is understanding that the psalm was put together to try to unpack for us what it is like to build according to God's wisdom. And I want to contrast with you man's wisdom versus God's wisdom on this. The American dream describes children as being potentially a blessing, potentially a liability, potentially a concern. Depends on how old you are, how wealthy you are, what your relative lifestyle is. You got to make sure you have all those things in line before you start having kids. You got to make sure that you can give them an adequate quality of life or else they might not be a blessing, they might be more of a liability. 
But again, notice what the text does not say. The text here does not say children in the right timing are a blessing from the Lord. It does not say children at the right stage of life are a heritage from the Lord. It does not give any conditional statements on the blessing that children are. It doesn't even say healthy children are a blessing from the Lord. It says children, which should begin to inform us about what it is like to agree with God and what it is like to be informed by the world. And many of us have grown up in this insidious culture that slowly whispers to us about children and offspring and what it is like to be wise about how we go about having children. Not that children are bad, but you need to be wise about how you have them. And the gospel tells us what Jesus did for those who were very undeserving. And yet this world tells us that we should never risk our necks for the least of these. And make no mistake, children are the least of these. They can't care for themselves. They don't know left from right. They need people to feed them, to shelter them, to watch over them. And the world describes all of these as a liability for your life and your lifestyle. And yet scripture says that children are a heritage from the Lord. Notice again what it does not say. It does not say that biological children are a heritage from the Lord. There are many ways to have children. Biological children, yes, to the glory of God. But there are many ways to have children. There are many ways to raise children. And follow with me this metaphor. It says, like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame. It says that a man is like a warrior. The person who raises children is like a warrior. And like a good warrior, they need to be well armed. And in this metaphor, the children are that weapon. The children are arrows. Now think about arrows and think about a warrior. A warrior who has a weapon would be foolish to not actually acquire the weapon. A warrior without arrows is what a man is like without children. Is what a person is like who tries to go through life without children. It's a warrior going into battle completely unarmed. Arrows don't grow anywhere. You have to shape them. You have to mold them. You have to craft them. And so are children. Arrows don't come sharp. They don't even stay sharp unless you maintain them. Children are the same. They come rough into the world, untamed. And you need to, through discipline and through God's grace, raise them well. And form them and shape them and craft them. And then also to maintain them. And another way in which this metaphor extends to children is arrows... They're shot. And once they're released, you can't change the trajectory. You can't change the direction. And so are children. You have them for a season. You have them for a time. You can influence them for a moment. But once they're gone, once they're out of your hands, out of your influence, you better hope you shot it in the right direction. Not you better hope. You better be sure. Children are arrows. And the man who fills his quiver with arrows is a wise warrior. It is a veteran soldier who prepares well for battle, who sharpens his arrows, who carefully maintains a full quiver. And so it is with a wise person. A wise person has a full quiver of arrows who they have ready 
sharpened, prepared to shoot. Because make no mistake, you and I are at war with culture, with the evil one. And we have weapons that the Lord has given us and resources that he's given us access to to fight this war. And yet you and I are like warriors who go into battle completely unarmed, thinking that we might have a fighting chance. And yet children are that fighting chance. It's a blessing from God. Now again, you have to take care of your arrows. You have to take care of those children. You have to raise them well. Consider Jacob and his 12 sons. Jacob, in his old age, no social security, great financial assets, famine hits the land, and his 12 sons make sure that he gets fed and he gets taken care of. And they go through a series of events towards the end of Genesis to do this. But it is very rare for people to want to square off against Jacob and his 12 sons because they have amassed a quite significant body of wealth, a quite significant body of influence. Consider David and all the sons that he has. And when one of his sons goes astray, his other sons band with him and he regains the kingdom. Consider the world's wisdom on this. The world says it is wise for you to invest in your career. It is wise for you to invest in your finances. It is wise for you to invest in retirement and in social security. But to have a children, to have many children, that is a complete liability. That's a risk, and you should be wise as to how you undertake that. And yet there are so many people without children who would trade their entire estates to have but one heir in their old age. And so once again, God's wisdom squares away with how the world actually works. Money, career, timing, doesn't matter if they're healthy. Children are always a blessing from the Lord. They are always a blessing. The world says children are a liability. God says children are a blessing. The world says money is a blessing. And God says actually money is a liability. Because the love of money is the root of evil. Money is a liability. It is difficult for a rich man to enter into heaven. And if you're poor, you have the temptations of robbery and stealing and going through dishonest means to make ends meet. Money is a liability, but children, they are a blessing always from God. And how you take care of children, how you raise them, is so, so, so important. Consider again the analogy. Once an arrow is shot, it is gone. There's an old song that I love that my dad used to play for me when I was growing up as a kid called Cats in the Cradle. And in this song, there is a man, a father, who invests in his career, who invests in his wealth, and who has a child. And as the song progresses, you see the dad continually begin to neglect the child and invest in his career. And he always says, one day, son, one day we'll spend time together. And then in his old age and in his retirement, in the last verse of that song, there's this tragic line where the son, the dad is retired and he wants to go meet with the son and hang out with him. He's retired. He's got nothing going on. He's got his career. He's got his wealth. And he says, I'd love to come see you. And the son says, well, I'd love to, but my job's a hassle and the kids are sick and, you know, maybe some other time, dad. We'll get together at some point. And he says that he hung up the phone and it occurred to him that his son was just like he was. His son was exactly like him. And so it is with us and how we will raise children. They turn out how you are. So it's not just what you say to them, it's how you also model for them what it is like to be a Christian. 
And so it is with your spiritual children as well. Many of you are discipling others in the faith. And it is not so much what you teach them. It is important what you teach them. But it's not so much what you teach them as what you model for them life to look like. How you live your life is so important for how they perceive a godly life to look. And so it is with children when we raise them. And many of us have not yet been blessed with children, but one day the Lord will be faithful. And we will have the opportunity to sharpen our arrows and to prepare the next generation and to build not a building that will eventually die, but build a movement of people who loves God and who will serve him faithfully. You see, the Israelites wandered through the wilderness for 40 years under the command of Deuteronomy chapter 6 that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength and that you should teach your children to obey all that I have commanded you. Teach them about the Exodus. Teach them the Ten Commandments. Teach them to love God. And at the end of that 40 years of wilderness exile, the previous generation died, the children that they had raised up, and they, with the leadership of Joshua, marched faithfully conquesting the Promised Land in one of the most boring books in all of Scripture because there's no drama of the Israelites rebelling. They faithfully walk city after city after city obedient to God because of the previous generation's investment in the future generation. And so it is with all of the church's generations that the Reformation happened and the movement spreads and it lasts only as long as the people who carry that movement, who carry that mantle. And a sure way to know that the mantle continues to be carried is to raise up, cultivate godly children, a godly next generation to carry the movement forward. Because they last longer than buildings. And they're more worth, and they're worth way more than buildings. And it's a much harder investment than a building. If you thought my analogy earlier about building this building would be difficult, just consider that even with all the resources we have access to, you could probably do this in a decent period of time. Maybe a year, maybe two years. No matter how many resources you have access to, raising a child takes at least 15, 16, 17, 18 good, solid years of cultivation. It's a much harder investment. It's a much harder resource. So we should be wise to consider this. We should be wise to know that even in our youth as a church, as a movement, as people in our lives, that this is something we can't let the world inform us about. We have to let God inform us about what children are and what they are like. So consider all the blessings that Scripture teaches us about children. Consider all of the warnings that Scripture teaches us about working for your career slavishly without the blessing of God. And the warnings on each of these stanzas, each of these lines. It is vain to build without God. It is vain to labor without God. So I encourage you and I exhort you to labor in a way that is not vain. Don't labor in a way that's vain. And when you have the privilege and the opportunity to raise children and to have influence on a young heart and a young mind, guard the deposit that has been entrusted to you. Consider Paul and young Timothy and how he exhorts him to keep the faith, to run the race, and how Timothy passes that mantle on. And consider how the blessing of children, as counterintuitive as it is, is the very means by which you and I are saved. You see, remember, God gives to Mary a child. And that child in an inconvenient time, in a countercultural way, raises up to become the savior of all humanity. 
against the wisdom of man. Not a conquering king, but a babe lying in a manger in abject poverty. And this is the wisdom of God to make low the wisdom of man. Things that we call foolish, God says, is a wise investment. And God says, matter of fact, it's so wise, I'm going to save the world with a child. And you and I, thousands of years later, know all of these things, and yet we still doubt. But we can look to the one who died in our place and place all of our doubts and all of our fears and all of our worries on the cross because of his finished work. Pray with me. Lord, we thank you for the scriptures. Lord, as this text take hold of our heart and of our mind and of our thoughts, I pray that you would allow us to be sensitive to the movement of your spirit. Lord, you are so good in your wisdom. You are so wise in your judgments. You are so loving. You are so merciful. Lord, you are so good to us. And Lord, I pray that we as a people would believe in your goodness, believe in your plan, believe in your wisdom, because Lord, we are so tempted to doubt and everything tells us to doubt. The world tells us that it is an unwise thing to listen to you. And yet, Lord, through your spirit, we can look through the doubt and look through the darkness into the glimmer of light that you have given us. And Lord, I pray that we would hold fast to that. Lord, your word is good. Your judgments are true. You are a good father who has raised us as his spiritual children. And so Lord, I pray that we would engard the deposit that has been entrusted to each and every one of us and to pass on and to continue on in the family of faith, and to guard all of the blessings that children are, both at the heart level for many of us, and Lord, if you bless us as well, in reality and in the real world as well, that on the ground we could be loving, good, caring, kind, and gracious parents who raise children well. Lord, I pray all these things in your holy and in your precious name. Amen.